All right. Good morning, Three Circle, and all of our friends joining us online and all of our campuses. We are one church with several locations, man. It's good to have everyone here today. We are in the middle of a hymns series. We're looking back to the past, the songs of our faith, and we're also looking at uh, the way those songs came to be. We're looking at the theological foundation that those songs come from. And today we're looking at one of my favorites, Victory in Jesus. Now, I grew up in the church, and I grew up hearing that song a lot. Like we sing, how many of you in this room grew up with that song? That was a kind of a part of you. Okay, I've asked this in every service because I truly want to know. How many of you, that's the first time you ever heard that song in your life? Okay, we got a few of those too. And so, man, hopefully you, you, you got a lot out of that. You understand uh, the, the point of the song, but what I'm going to try to do now is show you the theology behind the song because that is a theologically rich and beautiful song. And we're going to look at what that is all about. What does it mean when it says victory in Jesus? Uh, what is the line, he loved me ere I knew him? What does that mean? Uh, it means that God loved you before you loved him. And the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It means I didn't pursue God, he pursued me. It means that I didn't go running after Jesus, Jesus came running after me. The beauty of the gospel, the great God who pursues us. And that's what we see in that song. And so where does this beautiful theology come from? Well, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians today, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He wrote a few of them. Two of them end up in the canon of scripture. And he writes several verses that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at a couple of them, then we're going to go to Romans, and we're going to see that he, he who penned Romans as well, he's going to help us understand even more in depth the line he wrote in Corinthians, and then we're going to come back to his letter to the Corinthians and see exactly what he's teaching us. And you'll see how it all comes to victory in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 56. Paul begins this line taunting Death, taunting. This is language meant to be provocative and taunting. Look what he says. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I like basketball. I love when Steph Curry will hit a three-point shot that looks humanly impossible. He loves to do it in really crunch time of a game, and he likes to throw the dagger into the heart of his enemy, right? He'll hit these beautiful three-point shots, and one of his favorite things to do is then turn around especially if he's in a, a, a gym that's not his home gym. They've been booing him all night, right? He'll hit that shot and he'll look at the crowd and he'll say, shh, I love that. I bet, I bet the people in the gym don't, but man, that's cool, right? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, our greatest enemy, the greatest thing that we as humans face, the thing we don't even like to talk about, he says, where is your victory? Where is your sting? And then he then he gives us a very deep and complex theological line. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now, before we really wrap ourselves around and our hearts around our victory in Jesus, we need to understand how we got that victory, and that's what that line is all about. And let's take a deep dive into that now. And, and I think one of the best ways for me to explain it to you is to tell you a story. It's a personal story. About a month ago, I work out the day before, I go to bed, I wake up the next morning, and in bed, I wake up, and I'm like, what have I done to my back? Like, I, my back is on fire, I'm hurting bad. And so, I step out of my bed, and I stand up, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not my back, it's my stomach. I take another step, and I hit my knees. I feel like someone's driving a sword through my midsection. 
And I've heard enough stories that immediately my mind said, I think this might be a kidney stone. And so how many of you in the room are my kidney stone brothers and sisters? The rest of y'all need to go get one so you know what we're talking about. So I call, I get up, and I call my friend who is also my primary doctor, and I told him what's going on. He said, yeah, that's what that sounds like. Come on to the office. I sh- mistake number one, I shouldn't have driven myself to that office because I'm going down the road, and I'm pulling off the side of the road. I'm hurting so bad. And I finally get to him, and he, think, he said, that's probably what it is. He puts me on some meds, and, and he says, let's see what happens. And, and so that night, my son and my daughter were playing in championship county basketball games, okay? And so all day, I tried to come to the office. I just couldn't get through it, but I'm on some pain meds, and the pain would come and go. But that night, sitting at the game on bleachers in the gym, hot, I, I, it hits me in all of its fury. It starts hitting me. And I'm sitting there and the blood's leaving. My wife knows she's looking at me. She's like, oh my goodness. Even one of my friends like said something about a foul. And I was like, that is a foul. You know, I'm like yelling at people. She's like, Chris. And I was like, sorry, sorry. You know, (laughs) Pastor Chris (laughs) in all of his glory, you know? So I leave the gym and I go home and it's getting worse and worse. And and now it's nighttime and I think, okay, I got to make it through the night to get to back to the doctor tomorrow. I don't want to bother anybody tonight. It got so bad, y'all. I was out in my backyard and I figured out I could slowly do this in my backyard. And every time my foot hit the ground, that would give me just a moment of relief. And I was like, oh, that's nice. I had lost my mind. That's what had happened. (laughs) So my wife looks out the window and I didn't know she's on the phone calling our friend, the doctor. And she's like, here's what's going on. And... And he says, get him to the emergency room now. And so I tap out finally. We go to the emergency room. We get to the emergency room. I can't even, like, stand up. And by the time I get halfway through the emergency room, I'm crawling on the floor, no joke. I'm like, and, and the lady, all you hospital doctor, nurse people, I love you. You're awesome. You're also quite funny. The lady looks and she goes, without any concern, she goes, oh, I know what this is. We call it the kidney stone dance. Literally, I was like, most of the time I appreciate great humor, but not right now, you know? They were great. I crawl back to the room. They get me in there. I can't get on the bed to get an IV. They give it to me literally hanging over the side of the bed, and they're pumping me with stuff to try to stop this horrific pain. They finally get me to where I can get up in the bed, and I lie down, and they said, okay, now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go run a scan, because we need to make sure that indeed is what's going on. So let's roll. So... We go back there. Two people are doing the scans. I'll never forget. I'm sitting there and you can hear all this stuff. And one of them goes, oh, there it is. The other one goes, ooh, that's a big one. (laughs) The other one goes, there's two of them. The other one goes, oh, yeah, those aren't coming through. I'm like, really? Now, here's the thing about that scan. It fixed nothing. They couldn't, fi- they couldn't fix it. Watch this. All they could do was expose it. They had no fix. It was like, good luck with those. At least now you know what it is. <laughs> Thanks. I have two boulders inside of me. So they roll me back to the room. They give me another big dose of stuff to try to settle me down for the night, which it did. And then it was like, good luck. They could not help me. And that's what Paul's trying to get you to see here. The law exposes the issue which is sin. It cannot treat it. It will not treat it. It will never treat it. It has never treated it. The law of God has never saved anyone because no one's ever kept it. 
You can't keep God's law as a human. We are sinners. We fall short. Adam and Eve couldn't pull it off. We fall short. So therefore, the law doesn't save. What it does is expose us. So you know what we had to do? The next day, my primary doctor, who's a friend, hooked me up with my other friend who goes to our church who's a urologist. And the urologist, now he knows what's up. So I get on the phone with him. He said, yeah, yeah, I'm looking at your scans right now. Woo, that's a big one. There's two of them. I've heard this conversation, you know. He said, hey, here's what we're going to do. I love this language. He says, we're going to vaporize. We're going to vaporize those things. I said, man, I like that. Let's go to war against this thing. We're going to take care of this. But, I was like, whoa, I don't like that. He says, but, here's the problem. He said, you've picked the worst time ever to get a kidney stone. I'm like, I don't like where this is going. He said, because we can't do the procedure until next week. I was like, huh? Help a brother here? He said, yeah, yeah, the machinery we have, we need, it's going to be a few days. And, and it'll, it'll be Tuesday morning before we can do it. And he said, but I'm going to get you through the weekend. We're going to manage it. We're going to get you through. I got all kinds of super things that we can do. We'll manage it for the weekend. So here's what happened. One of the worst three or four day stretch of my life began right then. I thought it had gotten bad, but it was just every day, and I, I tried everything. We would Medication had worked for a little while, and I go, oh, that's good. And then, boom, it would come back in all of its fury. There were times that I, I figured out ways to six hours one day, I laid in the living room in a position that was not right for a human. I mean, it just, like I had my head turned one way, my legs up on a table, my arms under the couch, I got a pillow right here, and my wife comes in, and she's like, what are you doing? I said, oh, don't even, don't come near me. This is a spot. I got a spot right here. And I don't know why it feels good. So no pictures, no Instagram right now. But don't even breathe on me right now. I got to stay right here. And, I, and all I was doing was managing for days. All, watch. You know what I was doing? I was doing what we as sinners do when we try to be moral. All I was doing was temporarily covering the issue that had to be dealt with. That's what being a good person does, being a good Southerner, being a good conservative, being better than the person down the street. That's all I was doing was masking the reality. So a reckoning day had to come. And that came on Tuesday morning. I've never been happier than that. I woke up hurting real bad and I was like, but that's okay. Glory time is coming, man. My wife took me to the hospital. When my doctor, Dr. Kill, came through the door, who's an awesome urologist, I was like, and a hero comes along with the strength to carry on. You know what I mean? Say, like, my hero. Most important person in the world. Sorry, man. Most important person in the world right now to me. He comes in. He reminds me, oh, we're about to vaporize this thing. Yes, sir, we are. And they did. And see, what he did, watch, is he treated what the other folks only exposed Jesus treats the disease of sin when we turn to him. When we stop trying to mask it, when we stop trying to pain med it, when we stop trying to, I'll get through it. When we go, no, you know what? I need you, Jesus. I need you to save me. What I have cannot be treated. It cannot be managed, which is moralism. I need someone to fix this or save me. That's what we're saying. I surrendered. I'll surrender to Dr. Kill and his team. I would have done anything they said in that moment if he would have said, hey, bad news, we're going to have to take one of your arms to get these things out. I would have been like, hand me the saw, brother. If he would have said, we're going to need your house, cool. 
your retirement, all that. Yep, you got it. Kids' education. Hey, man, we'll figure it out. That's how, that's how bad it had gotten. I got to the point I was hopeless. Like, I, but I'm so glad that he went and did all that work. All those years of work he did to become the great, brilliant doctor he is, that he knew how to do it. I started thinking, what did the guys back in the Cowboys days do? When they got one of these, did they just get a stick, a bottle of whiskey, and sit under a tree and hope for the best? Poor people. I guess. But I, you know what? I had someone who could fix it. And they did. Listen to what, listen to what Paul wrote in Romans about this issue. Because see, too many of us are messing around with this thing called sin. We're playing the moralism game, and all you're doing is covering up something that's still pounding inside of you. It'll rear its ugly head over and over again your whole life. And like a kidney stone has the potential to actually kill somebody and infect and destroy you, eventually, if it's not dealt with, sin will too. But sin's destruction is eternal in its potential destructiveness. Paul said this in Romans 8. There's therefore, this is a great line. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you have heard that verse before? Isn't that a great verse? Now let me just slow down for you because every one of us thinks, I believe, when we hear that initially, we think, that's about the devil. The devil can't condemn me anymore. Can we just stop giving him so much credit? It's not all about him. It's sitting about the devil. Satan is a fallen angel. He can be one place at one time. He is not omnipresent. He does not know everything, can't even read your mind, and he's not all-powerful. He has limitations on his power. Listen, our, our spiritual enemy is for real. He's the real deal. He is not God. This is Your greatest enemy has never been Satan. Your greatest enemy is you. It's you. It's your sin nature. It's your flesh. And... When this says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's talking about the condemnation that comes from our own sin, the nature we were born with and the nature we all act on. Because look at the next line. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. So a new law that Christ brought to us has set us free in Christ Jesus from something, from the law of sin and death that has condemned us. Verse 3, watch. For God has done what the law, like my doctor did what the scan couldn't. The scan exposed, my doctor had to treat it. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. How did he do it? By sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now just stop. Because that's too good of a line to leave it. Listen, church. What it's saying there, the righteous requirement of the law, let me just give you one word, perfection. If you're not perfect, you're not going to heaven. If you're not perfect, you don't have eternal life. Jesus came. That's so heavy, isn't it? But that's why the law condemns. And the law is written in your heart when you're born. That's why you have a conscience. And then it was written in stone and paper because God revealed through the word, the law, and then Jesus came and lived it because no one had ever seen it lived out. They saw Jesus live it out. So we've got the law, which is the requirement of God. And Jesus came along, and people actually believed that they were following the law. The Pharisees were arrogant enough to think they were. A rich guy one day came to Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus said, no problem, just follow the law. Keep all the law. And they, he goes, I do. 
That'd be like me saying, anybody in here sinless? And you go, me, me, I'm no sin here. So there was a problem in Jesus' day in Judaism. They thought they were actually keeping the law somehow. So Jesus ratchets up the weight of the law. See, he wasn't just walking around Jerusalem giving out free fish sandwiches all the time. He was also preaching. One day he said this to them. He said, if you're not more righteous than the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were known as the most righteous, he looked at the crowd, he said, if you're not better than them, you got no hope. So he's making it heavier, the law, the law, heavier, trying to get people to see you're not keeping the law, you're breaking the law. We're all lawbreakers. One day he was preaching, he said, you've heard it said to not murder your brother or your sister. I say to you, you even think in your heart and mind that they're a fool and you have murdered and you're worthy of the hellfire. That's what he said. Whoa. You wouldn't even want him to be your pastor. But I don't like that guy. Always so negative. What was Jesus doing? Ratcheting up the weight of the law that condemns. Trying to get everyone to see that you're hopeless. You can't mask this sin problem. You can't cover your own sin. You can't take enough pain meds to make a kidney stone go away. No, no, no. Jesus said no. What he's trying to get them to see is that they need him. One day his disciples privately looked at him after he talked like this. And they said to him, if they're, if they're not good enough, the Pharisees, then what can we do? What can we do? To which I'm sure Jesus was going, finally, you're getting this. Yeah, what can you do? Nothing but come to me. What can you do to cover your sin? Nothing but come to Jesus. He's the only one. You're out of options. Righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. How can that happen? Once we feel that weight and we're like, if that's the case, we've all, we're all murderers, we're all liars, we're all adulterers. Remember what he said about adultery? You think it in your heart, we're all going, oh. If that's true, then we're all hopeless. Yes. And it says here that Jesus came and fulfills in us the righteous requirement of the law. How? Because he lives a perfect life and then gives you the credit for it. The gospel, the great exchange. He took your shame on the cross, gives you his righteousness. Amazing. Look what it says. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we're not trying to win our own salvation. Those of us who get this free gift of God, we decided we can't fix it on our own, so we came to Jesus. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh, people who are still trying to save themselves, they set their minds on things of the flesh. How can I be a better person? How can I vote better? How can I do this? I'm self-improvement. But those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You see the difference? What Paul is telling you quite simply is this. The law condemns us, but the gospel saves. Amen, church? The gospel saved. This is how you became a Christian. This is how it happened. This is the trail God took you down. This is what we mean when we say, victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever. Now, he goes on. He goes on. 
1 Corinthians 15, 57, the next verse he says, but thanks be to God. So again, he builds the weight, the sin, the power of the law. And then he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a line. Let's look at this line for a minute. First, what do I see here? Well, the first thing I see is that victory, if you're a Christian, is yours. It's ours. Victory is ours. We just got to walk in it. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You're not jumping through hoops trying to impress God because he's impressed in Jesus. You're not, a, you're not a person that has to be even afraid of death anymore. That's why yesterday I did a funeral for a 91-year-old woman who over and over in her prayer journals called God her Lord. So I was able to look at a crowd and go, hey, because she taught like that, because she made Jesus her Lord, she stands not condemned but free. Free in Jesus because she walked into heaven not because she was a good lady, but because Jesus was a great Savior. Victory is ours. The problem is often we don't walk in it. And you know what? You know the only thing worse than losing is having the victory and not hanging on to it. Let me show you what I mean. This is what it looks like on a football field. Guy's running. He's got the ball. No one's near. Oop. Oh, no. He did not win that game. Here's another one. Victory is his. No one's anywhere near him. He's got it. He's got Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that didn't go well. Here's another one. Look, wide open. No one's near. Oh, victory is right there. It's already yours. What are you doing letting go of it? How about this? Victory in Jesus. Oh, yeah. My skin. Oh, no. Slow it down. Look at that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No. No, he did not. He didn't. Oh, man. This is where a lot of us are, frankly. You have victory. You you walk afraid. You're scared of who's going to win the next election. You're worried about this. You're worried about that. You're mad about this. You're mad about that. You look just like the world instead of living in the victory God's given you. You've got victory over your own flesh. You've got victory over sin. You've been given victory over death. You can have joy. You can have freedom. You can have all of these things. They are yours. Just stop dropping the football at the line. Walk in your victory, right? Walk in your victory. Now, but there's something else we see here. Yes, he's given us the victory. That means that it's a gift. This is interesting. Our victory is not won by us. It's given to us. Don't ever forget that. Because therein lies the key to you not being prideful and you not being arrogant is that this victory was won for you, not by you. And there's a big difference. See, the Christian life is the only battle where surrender is actually victory. In every other battle that we've ever seen, to surrender, to wave the white flag, means that you're the loser. But not in Christianity. The Christian life is that when we wave our white flag of surrender to Jesus, we win. Look, I had to surrender to the doctors. I'm like, I can't do anything else. And the moment I said, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, was the moment I was on the road to freedom. From the kidney stones. All right? I read a book a few years ago about... uh, Vicksburg, Mississippi. It's known as the Battle of Vicksburg. Vicksburg, Mississippi, before the Civil War, was one of the richest cities in America. Sadly, they gained that wealth on the back of slaves. 
And so it's good that the city fell, but how it fell is interesting. Vicksburg sat up on a hill over the Mississippi River and it had cannons and they thought, this is, we're, we're not defeatable. No one can beat us. They'll never get to us. Ulysses S. Grant proved to them, indeed, you can be defeated. He ran his boats right under those cannons and they couldn't fire them fast enough. He got his army behind and he put the city in a siege from all angles. He basically starved them to death and very rich southern folk in Vicksburg with their chandeliers hanging from the ceiling. Started off eating steaks and corn and all that stuff they had and they're like, we'll be fine. And then they ran out of that and they're under siege. They can't get anything. So then they started getting so hungry after weeks and weeks and weeks and months went by. They looked around and suddenly they said, you know old Henry, the horse out back? I bet a good long cook on the barbecue make him real tender. They started eating their horses. And they started eating rats. True story. All to not surrender. We're not waving that flag. Some of them started boiling their leather shoes and eating bark off of pine trees till finally someone said, get the flag or we're all going to die. And someone reluctantly went out there, grabbed that white flag. We surrender. But they fought that surrender. They lost everything before they surrendered. They would not lose their so-called dignity. Listen, the Christian life's the opposite. We run to the white flag. We gladly, joyfully just grab it and start waving it. We surrender, Jesus. You're our king. We'll do whatever you say to do. And it does not make us a loser the moment you grab the white flag of surrender as a Christian. You have won your battle. You have won every battle. That is where victory lies for the Christian. And surrender to Jesus. That's where it happens. So our victory comes not by us. It was given to us. And it comes to us. Write it down through Jesus. That's what it says. Through Jesus. God has given us the victory. That's why we sing victory in Jesus. The man who wrote victory in Jesus was a rural guy in Arkansas. And he was in a wheelchair. He had needs. He had disabilities. And yet Jesus had given him victory that a chair couldn't keep from him. He had found a different kind of victory when he penned these beautiful, theologically rich doctrinally accurate words. Our victory comes through Jesus, so therefore we brag about him. It leads us to gratitude. The victory in Jesus should make us grateful. That's what it says, but thanks be to God. How many of you are thankful for the victory God gave you, won for you, handed to you, right? Victory's in Jesus, so we're grateful for it. You know what I've not done over the past month? I don't walk around town and when someone says, hey, man, I heard you had a horrible case of kidney stones. How did it go? I don't look at them and go, hey, let me tell you something. I'm a man. <laughs> kidney stones came to me. I sent them on down the road, man. I didn't need a doctor. I just gritted my teeth, put a little dirt on it. That's right. No, I don't say that. You know what I do? I look at them and I go, let me tell you something. Besides my wife and my children and Jesus. Dr. Chris Kills, one of the best human beings I've ever met in my life. Because my urologist, oh man, I tell him I was begging for mercy. I had no more options. 
Tylenol is a joke in the face of the dragon known as the kidney stone. No, I brag about him. I brag about the care I got, his team, the doctors that fixed it for me. And you know what? We as Christians, we do the same. Yes, we are very braggadocious. We brag. We just brag and brag and brag on Jesus. We write songs about him. We endlessly come out with new songs about Jesus. We lift our hands. Sometimes we cry. We laugh. We are joyful. We're passionate. Why? Because we were lost and now we're found. Because Jesus fixed what we couldn't fix. And he gave us victory. Our victory is not in ourselves. It's in Jesus. So you better believe we praise him and worship him. Our victory is in Christ and it's in Christ alone. See, gratitude, when we understand what the gospel is for us, we will not be entitled. We will not be bitter, angry people. We will be joyful with gratitude that we've been set free in Jesus. And he ends by telling us what it should look like now if we have been given the victory. Well, what does it look like to walk in victory? What does that even look like? Well, he tells you in verse 58. Notice the word therefore. I can't tell you how important these words are in the Bible. When you see therefore, put the car in reverse. Don't you go a, not an inch further until one more time you look back at what the Bible just said. Because what he's about to tell you is directly connected to what he just told you. Therefore. So what did he just tell us? He just told us about our victory that's in Jesus. He told you how you became a Christian. Not by law, but by Jesus. And how the law exposed your sin, but Jesus saved you from it. So since all that's true, therefore, watch. My beloved brothers, sisters, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me tell you what is vain, what is worthless. Taking more Tylenol when you got a kidney stone. It doesn't work. And, and if you're here today, let me tell you what is in vain. If you don't know Jesus, thinking you'll ever be good enough on your own you're ever going to do enough, be good enough, moral enough. Nope, that's pain meds when you need surgery. But Paul says here, if we've been given the victory, then live like it. Be, what's the word? Steadfast. We're not shaky. We don't get scared of everything. We don't get mad about everything. We live free. We got a light touch to us as Christians, don't we? Oh, we care about things deeply but we're not going to get rocked by anything because we walk in victory. We're conquerors in Jesus. Immovable. We're not blown around by every new doctrine and every new wind. And we stand in the gospel. Always abounding, meaning we're always looking for the next thing to do that brings glory to Jesus. We're just always looking abounding. Can I do more good things for Jesus? Not because I'm earning my salvation. No, no, this is not a circus dance. I'm not working for, the, for my salvation. I'm working from it. I'm a free man. I'm immovable in Jesus. I am steadfast in Jesus. So then I abound in the work of the Lord. See, the victory should lead us to a bold and consistent Christian life. That's the result of it. I'm a, I'm a big history guy. I love, 
American history. Our country is certainly not perfect, but it certainly is great in many ways. And I love its history. And its history is interesting. You get under the hood of it, you'll see that uh, sometimes the, there's more to the story than you thought, right? That's true of the American Revolution. We all like to think that George Washington and a bunch of country boys went and beat the biggest army in the world. That's a great story. The English with all that tea, British tea. We went out there with our coffee, our shotguns. We took them down with old George on top of the horse. A little more to the story than that. Let me tell you a little piece of the story you might not be aware of that, that really helps us understand today our place. There's no way that America was winning that war. And George knew it. You know who else knew it? John Adams. Ben Franklin. They all knew it. They knew. We're going to lose. Because that's the biggest, baddest army in the world. And we got a bunch of carrot farmers. So what'd they do? They went and got help. A big part of the story is they, they, they couldn't win on their own. They had to go get some help. And this is why the day the British surrendered, the day they all got up and had the Earl tea that morning and walked out there to surrender, they weren't just surrendering. Oh, it was official to America setting us free. But there were some other guys there that day. They were vive la France. Because we don't win without France. The home of the croissant. Those boys. They showed up with their military might and their money. They showed up and helped us win that war. In fact, the most famous painting ever of Yorktown, the surrender, is interesting. When you look at it, you'll find on one side the Americans, but on the other side, the French. Because all of them knew, including George Washington, that that battle wasn't just won by the Americans. That battle's not won without the French. Now, all illustrations to try to grab onto the gospel fall short. This one does too. Because while that's a great illustration, it's not a perfect one. Because if you were to paint that picture for us in the gospel, we're not even on the canvas. There'd be one person and one victory. And there wouldn't be horses or swords. There would be a cross and a crown. Because the victory belongs to Jesus. And we're conquerors because of him. Oh, victory, my Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for that line. Thank you that we are more than conquerors in you. May you be glorified today. You, the conqueror. We brag about you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.